This is Emergency Care in Scotland. I'm Stuart Ramsey. I'm a paramedic working out of Glasgow East Station. And today I'm here with Richard Stevenson, who is a consultant in the Glasgow Royal. And we're going to talk about acute behavioural disturbance. Can you tell us a bit about your experience and where you work? So I'm an emergency medicine consultant. And I've been one for just under 10 years now. I work in Glasgow Royal Infirmary uh, and I also am a volunteer police officer with British Transport Police as well. I've been doing that for about five years. Nice. Uh, so, any consultant for 10 years, uh, how long did it take you to become a consultant? Uh, quite a while. I went through the, the road less travelled uh, and I didn't <laughs> do a training programme. I did a basically an equivalence, uh, a demonstration of equivalence, of experience and knowledge, uh, and I managed to get through uh, after about six, seven years uh, of study. And so volunteer police, is that a special constable? Is that That's right, yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for about five years now. Well, we're going to talk about acute behavioural disturbance. So you're going to have an interest in this being both police and emergency medicine. Um, I've come across it a few times, quite a few recently, which has been quite interesting. Uh, there's a bit of interest in the media about it just now as well. So if you could just tell us about what is acute behavioural disturbance. Certainly. So acute behavioural disturbance uh, is reference to a condition that's uh, probably not recognised as frequently as it should be uh, by police and by medical professionals. Um, it's a relatively new uh, diagnosis, um, but it stretches back into the 1800s in psychiatric literature there, where it was initially referred to as Bell's mania. And that was almost 75% mortality uh, with their cases. Uh, ABD is uh, is increasing in frequency. And we're, as clinicians, we're getting better at recognising it. Uh, but we're truly trying to work out what the best treatment for someone who presents in this manner is. Uh, and there's very little uh, evidence base to guide us on that. So I've got a little note here from a critical care note guidelines um, and it says the background so ABD is a medical emergency and we should maintain a high index of suspicion for sudden cardiac arrest potential asphyxia drug toxicity and severe metabolic acidosis are all likely and contribute to cardiovascular collapse restraint must be justified and only for the minimum time necessary to gain pharmacological control a pharmacological control or restraint or sedation should never be used to simply facilitate law enforcement. So if you could tell us, how does somebody who is suffering from acute behavioural disturbance, how will they present? So uh, uh, the, the definition of acute means that it's uh, within short onset. There definitely will be uh, an element of confusion uh, in the person's presentation and they will often repeatedly say things or they'll be very, very, very paranoid and uh, they will be agitated and not wanting to be restrained in any way, shape or form. Uh, the physiological response to that is that they uh, secrete a lot more adrenaline in their, in their bodies um, and this in, in turn drives an acidosis in addition to the muscle exercise. 
the generation of muscle activity uh, leads to increased heat production and the body is unable to dispel that heat from itself, leading to mortality and morbidity uh, associated with the condition. So the, the great amount of number of cases are associated with drug use, uh, particularly cocaine, uh, but other stimulants. And also there's been one case of cannabis as well uh, that's been in the literature. And it's not really uh, alcohol withdrawal. That's a separate entity altogether. But uh, certainly drugs. And also in rare occasions, it can be due to psychiatric disturbance as well, such as schizophrenia or a mania in relation to bipolar affective disorder as well. So if we're talking about um, alcohol withdrawal, would that be delirium tremens? Yes, that's right, yeah. And that's usually, what I understand, that's people hallucinating because of lack of sleep and not enough alcohol. So effectively, the brain's in a hyperstimulated state uh, due to the reduction of GABA production in the brain, and this leads to a highly agitated state with hallucinations. Auditory hallucinations are part of the spectrum of the disorder as well. So I've read quite an interesting book called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker, and there was a part in it about... Uh, delirium tremens and how alcohol stops your brain getting REM sleep. Yeah. REM sleep is when you dream and when you drink alcohol for a long time, your brain will just force you to have REM sleep when you're awake, which are dreams, which is you hallucinating. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and that highlights the difference between ABD and delirium tremens. Uh, ABD is an excessive adrenaline flowing through the body uh, and on the background of an acute confusional state, which can be precipitated by drugs or drug withdrawal. Uh, another example is GHB uh, withdrawal. That's particularly severe and difficult to manage. I think I've experienced this quite a lot with spice, so synth synthetic cannabis. Yeah, uh, that's that seems... an intoxication uh, uh, problem. We don't really see much of a withdrawal state per se anymore with cannabis because uh, synthetic cannabis is reduced, uh, thankfully. Uh, but you're right, synthetic cannabinoids are a well-known precipitant of ABD. Is serotonin syndrome related to it? What's the difference between serotonin syndrome and ABD? So serotonin syndrome is a specific condition associated with too much serotonin in the brain precipitated by drugs. Um, it can present as ABD, uh, which isn't very helpful, but it's a different mechanism of precipitation. Uh, and the agitation that you get with serotonin syndrome may present as ABD. Uh, and again, the treatment for that is sedation and rehydration. It's quite important to distinguish between ABD and bad behaviour. So are there any tips or anything you could look out for in a patient that is just being undesirable rather than being clinically unwell? Yeah, so this is the, this is one of the dangerous aspects of managing the condition and identifying who is truly sick and who is, uh, for want of uh, bad behaviour. And so the first thing would be would be the level of confusion. Uh, if someone is unable to obey simple commands, um, if they are constantly repeating uh, statements over and over and over again, uh, and they're exhibiting extreme fear, then that's likely to be ABD. If it's someone who's saying, "I'm not going to uh, do that, officer. Uh, you don't touch me. Uh, he's 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 hurting me on purpose. He's trying to make me sore. He's trying to make me kick off." That behaviour is more consistent with behavioural 
issues rather than uh, ABD. And <clears throat> what kind of symptoms are we going to look out for? So the good thing is that the examination is pretty limited, to be honest. Uh, it's recognition of the behavior patterns, tactile hypothermia, where you touch the person's skin just generally and they feel absolutely red hot. They may be sweating, but when the body temperature gets to a certain level, the body stops sweating, the production of sweating, uh, and that leads to a dog leg rise in, um, in body temperature. Uh, the person will be... Very, very acting very strong, and that's usually the adrenaline, uh, and they will be resisting all attempts to help them. So, is there a temperature we should be looking out for? Is there any kind of threshold as to when it would be getting exceptionally dangerous? For because the, the temperature is one that you probably would be able to get if the person's been restrained. You'd be able to get a thermometer in their ear. You'd be able to get probably a three lead ECG. You'll be able to get a BM. And you'd be able to feel and see that they're warm. Yeah, I mean, with the temperature aspect, um, if you can get it, it would be great. If you can't, I'm not going to uh, criticise because uh, we know how difficult these individuals are um, in response to people trying to help them and the resisting aspect of it. Um, so any temperature at all above 38 is a risk factor and is a is an alarm bell to say this person's unwell. Um, what we've seen in the literature uh, is that cases where the body temperature is greater than 41, uh, that is associated with a high risk of mortality and morbidity, uh, and they require really quite urgent uh, immediate care. So we've decided that this person isn't just badly behaved and that they are having acute behavioural disturbance. So the first thing that I think we have to consider is the safety of the patient and the safety of, in my case, ambulance crew. And usually there'll be police on scene. If not, there's nothing that we can do until the police are there and the patient is restrained safely. So is there... A, what's the best way and the safest way to restrain the patient? So with any restraint, it should be the minimal amount required for the shortest shortest duration possible, which doesn't really give you very much to go on. Uh, but what we're basically saying is uh, you escalate your restraint levels, uh, or the police will escalate the restraint levels according to the behaviour of the individual, um, and maybe there's hang, application of handcuffs is all that's required, but then there may be the requirement for leg restraints as well, and that's pretty much full uh, body restraint there, um, and that should be classed as an absolute medical emergency and brought straight to hospital uh, for immediate assessment in the resource room. I've been in situations where, so that's not going to be comfortable. If someone's handcuffed, they're probably handcuffed behind their back. Mm -hmm. um, they're not really going to want to listen to your instructions I've been in situations where we were able to get handcuffs one handcuff removed and then allow the patient to sit against a wall with still with people restraining them and that calmed the patient down a little bit and made it more manageable but I think that's going to be situation dependent and safety dependent really yeah very very much so and ultimately the safety of the, the individual that's violent and aggressive will be uh, for the police to determine the level of restraint and response that's required uh, to make that situation as safe as it can be. And I think the police in that instance would quite like someone medical to come along and then just sedate the patient there and then and take him out 
to the ambulance and into hospital. Uh, is it as simple as that? No, sadly not. Uh, <clears throat> the issue of sedation is uh, interesting from a legal perspective as well as a, as a pharmacological perspective as well. Um, basically, because the evidence is quite low on there. Uh, what we do know is that benzodiazepines are poorly effective at reducing the anxiety and the agitation. Um, that's not to say that they're ruled out. It's just to make you aware of the limitations of those particular medications. Uh, when we have people brought to hospital that require urgent sedation or immediate sedation, uh, we will probably start on the lines using uh, the drug called olanzapine, which is an antipsychotic. And that works within about 15 minutes, as opposed to haloperidol, which is the old-fashioned one. Uh, and that was takes up 30 to 45 minutes uh, peak effectiveness. Um, we will sometimes use uh, promethazine as well, which is otherwise known as phenigan, uh, in combination with the lanzapine. If, however, the situation is more uh, urgent and there is a real concern that the person may go into cardiac arrest due to their agitation and fighting against restraint, then we would administer uh, an intramuscular dose of ketamine based on the person's estimated weight. Pre-hospitally, as a paramedic, the only thing that I'm able to give for what I think is acute behavioural disturbance would be high-flow oxygen. How important is high-flow oxygen? If you can put it on, it's great. If you can't, I wouldn't worry too much about it. We're just going to have to get that person to hospital as quick as possible um, because the longer you spend time trying to strap an oxygen mask on uh, and they're repeatedly pulling it off, uh, plus the fact as well it's a, fe a fear that something's over their face and uh, stopping them breathing uh, with the oxygen mask, which is paradoxical to what you're trying to do. Uh, but certainly, you know, if you can administer oxygen, uh, please do so. I could ask for critical care support who would be able to give metazolam, IM, IV. They can give haloperidol and they can also give ketamine. These patients are going to be critically unwell. They're going to be sweating profusely. They're going to have a high temperature and they're going to have a fast respirate. It's not, we're not really going to be able to give them a full medical examination. So what this patient needs is early intervention for critical care and rapid transport to hospital. And then if the patient has been going through this for a long time, you said they're at risk of cardiac arrest. So are there a few causes of cardiac arrest because of this condition? So the uh, underlying physiology is grossly deranged. When we look at these individuals, uh, blood gas results, we find that they've got uh, quite a severe acidosis. Uh, the bicarbonate's uh, fallen down. They have low CO2s due to hyperventilation, um, and they're usually tachycardic, uh, and we've not really been able to measure blood pressure when someone's actively fighting like that. So we don't expect pre-hospital care providers to be uh, obtaining a, an exhaustive list of uh, observations and uh, interventions uh, but the other the other much lower cause of cardiac arrest is with uh, due to ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation uh, but this is much much uh, lower in incidence than is death sudden death due to asystole from an acute uh, acidosis so we've got our patient they have been suffering from this condition for a while and suddenly they go into cardiac arrest we're going to follow our advanced life support algorithm as we normally would. We've already have a good suspicion as to what's caused the cardiac arrest. So which reversible causes could we 
be looking at pre-hospitally and what would we, which reversible causes would we need to deal with in hospital? So pre-hospitally, you're right to identify, is it a lack of oxygen? Uh, is hypoxia uh, a factor? It usually isn't, to be fair, uh, but it's certainly something that you would have to consider given the uh, presentation of someone who's uh, barely breathing or in, in cardiac arrest. And other things, such as hypovolemia from excess sweating and the circulatory system is just shut down. Uh, so it would be a bonus to give IV fluids, but again, on the caveat that you're able to restrain the individual and obtain safe, uh, safe IV access, uh, and rather than trying to get a needle stick, when you're trying to insert a cannula, it's better when the patient's been sedated. Um, other risk factors are toxins and meta metabolic, so it could be acute toxicity from the drugs they've taken. And so like a cocaine binge is one of the classic ones, and the cocaine toxicity itself leads to cardiac arrhythmias. Then when we look at the person coming into the hospital, uh, we're looking at things like um, usual things like blood sugar. Uh, we're looking at the venous gases to see how bad the acidosis is. Uh, and if we if if indicated, we would give some bicarbonate, but I don't I don't recommend that for pre-hospital use. We want to use that in um, in hospital when you've got an accurate measure of the acid base status. Uh, unless there's changes on the ECG, such as broad complex tachycardias, in which case we would consider giving a small dose of bicarbonate uh, to normalise that ECG and restore circulation. Excellent. So how long should these patients expect to be in hospital for? Are they going to recover quickly? How long is it going to take? That's a really good question because it is in the, each individual uh, presents entirely in their own manner and for their own duration of symptoms. Uh, what we can find is that the agitation uh, requires that they have to have a general anaesthetic, and usually these people are on uh, propofol overnight, uh, and then we they, wean them off in the morning, they have no memory of any event whatsoever. However, there's other medical complications, such as uh, rhabdomyolysis uh, and acute kidney uh, failure, uh, which then leads to a period of being on dialysis for a couple of weeks as a hospital inpatient. Finally, there's some people that unfortunately their mental status just does not return to normal, and these individuals often end up in long-stay mental health units uh, for months at a time and until their brain chemistry resets itself. And is it likely they will go back to the way they were before the, the incident? Yes. Yeah, it, it seems to be the way that uh, the longer that they're in the acute behavioural status for, the longer that they will take to recover. But there is the majority of them will uh, respond to treatment very well uh, with, with simple basic treatment of sedation, rehydration. Thank you to Richard Stevenson there from the Glasgow Royal A&E. Just to recap, ABD is usually, but not exclusively, caused by drugs. The majority of acutely disturbed or delirious patients can be managed using de-escalation techniques. ABD is a clinical emergency and is time critical. The patient may suffer sudden cardiovascular collapse or cardiac arrest or both with little or no warning. Once ABD is identified, additional clinical support must be requested. Patient restraint time must be kept to an absolute minimum. The degree of restraint used must be justifiable, reasonable and applied for the minimum time necessary and proportional to the situation. Clinicians must take all reasonable actions to clinically monitor the patient throughout restraint where possible. If possible, 
and safe early management of hyperthermia, hypovolemia and acidosis should be instituted with IV fluids and oxygen. Cardiac arrest is likely to have been caused by ventricular fibrillation or acidosis. The likely reversible causes in cardiac arrest are hypoxia because of inadequate ventilation or work of breathing due to prolonged restraint, hypovolemia due to profuse sweating and toxins, the drugs which are likely to have caused the episode, usually cocaine but could be any. Recovery time is case dependent. Apologies if this episode was a bit rough around the edges. I'm still learning how to edit and produce podcasts. Please always follow the guidelines of your organisation and only work within your own scope of practice. Thank you for listening.